just want to welcome all of you again this morning and uh, extend a special welcome to the Stoddard and uh, Tipton families here with us today. We just want you to know we, we greet you and uh, we're, we're with you in this, in this time. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto God, who is our rock and our redeemer this morning. So 80 years ago, a young woman named Billie Holiday recorded an anti-lynching song called Strange Fruit in response to the Jim Crow era that saw over 3,000 African Americans lynched in the United States. Some of those lyrics sound like this. Southern trees bear a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. A graphic account of persecution that is not dissimilar to one that we've seen even just in the last 30 days. In just the month of April, We saw three churches burned in Louisiana. We saw over 290 uh, people in Sri Lanka killed, murdered on Easter Sunday. Many of them in churches, worshiping. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, uh, from the text that I will read, gives us an introduction to the life of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And it is a very rough story. It's a graphic story. We first encounter Paul, uh, or Saul, excuse me. We find out that he is present at the execution of one of the early Christians, Stephen, who was the first Christian, we call him the first Christian martyr. Uh, he was killed for his faith. And there was a man there who was partly responsible and he was supporting the action. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. So then we pick back up in chapter nine of Acts, which is Luke's uh, story telling of the acts really of the Holy Spirit the early church uh, as we have experienced and seen and so uh, Acts chapter 9 begins this way. but Saul this is Saul of Tarsus still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither neither ate nor drank. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So Saul of Tarsus, he is quite a character. He's, he's a zealot of zealots. He is so fiercely loyal to his God. Paul is a young Jew. He's marked on every list as the most likely to succeed. He would have been the top of his class in everything. 
He studied with the best teachers that they had to offer in the day, what we would think of as the modern day equivalent of a C.S. Lewis, you know, our best people. You know, he can only train two or three, and we're going to send those people to him. And Paul was one of those guys. Saul, excuse me, was one of those guys. Saul of Tarsus. He was a fiercely, a Jew, fiercely loyal to his God. He would do anything in the service of his God. He's the kind of young man that you would want on your team. And the kind of young man, if he wasn't on your team, you would fear it. He's the guy that knew how to get things done. He's the guy that once you delegated it to him, you knew it was done and you didn't have to check on it again. Because Paul knew how to get stuff. Excuse me, I keep saying Paul. We know him as Paul. He's still Saul at this point. Saul knew how to get things done. I mean, this guy, I don't know how to describe him. He was so fiercely loyal to his God that his persecution that we read about is birthed in devotion. It's birthed in zeal for the living God, wanting to please God. It's not enough for Saul just to run the followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem, which he's already done. But now he has to chase them down one by one, the ones that got away. Or he has to go and find the outliers. You know, it's kind of like that scene from Tombstone where Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp goes out and finds all the cowboys that have run away. And he tracks them down one by one, making sure they know that he's not pleased and that they're not going to survive because of what they did. Paul, I keep doing it. Saul is, is so mad that there was this group of people that followed this guy named Jesus who Paul believes to still be dead. And they're a threat to the Jewish community. They're a threat to the real worship of God. So Saul is fiercely determined and loyal to get rid of these people known as Christians. If you uh, like the Enneagram language, I wonder if Paul was an Enneagram 6. Just fiercely loyal. He's tuned in. Like once you get him locked in, it's like a heat-seeking missile. You can't, can't pry him away. He's there. He's in the mix. So Jerusalem to Damascus, Paul's journey, uh, the day that we read about, uh, I think the mileage is roughly like what it would be from here to Lubbock. So for us in modern transportation, you know, we run to Lubbock for a meeting and we run back all in the same day, a couple hours, no big deal. Uh, in Saul's day, uh, whether by horseback or on foot, you know, you're probably looking at a week, something like that. Maybe if you're really smoking along, you can do 20 miles a day, something like that. But he's moving. Uh, so he's on his way. He's on his journey to Damascus. And, you know, Saul does not have this encounter with the risen Christ while he's just going along, minding his own business, you know, working on his taxes and going to the grocery store. This guy is on a mission trip. I mean, he's on, he's, he's locked in. He's set aside some things, right? He's left his family. He's tuned in. We could imagine him to be fasting and really focusing on what he's doing. He's locked in. I imagine Saul on that road having sort of his mission trip playlist. You know, he's got his, his uh, iTunes heat up. It's all ready to go. He's got the Psalms of David playing in his ear. You know, God's not going to let me be put to shame. My enemies are going to be falling at my feet. He's ready to go. Some scholars even anticipate that at times like this, a young Jew like Saul would be imagining the prayer experiences of, of the people that went before him like Ezekiel. So if you can imagine, you know, Ezekiel's writing the vision that he sees when the glory of God is revealed to him, and he's, you know, telling us about the wheels and the stuff. We get, you know, wheels in the sky, keep on turning. So bad rendition, I know. But it comes from there, and we're, you know, so Paul, he's all, he's singing along, he's going down the road, and he just keeps ascending, keeps focusing on God. And maybe he goes from the wheels to the throne, 
and the very glory of God, the hope for a young Jew that you might see the glory of God, that you could just catch a glimpse, you know, on your way, on your mission trip, on your thing, that you would see this God, that he would give you this experience of knowing him in a special way. So Saul's moving along, and he's interrupted, or he's met on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven shines around him, and falling to the ground, he hears a voice speak to him. We don't know if he's walking and he falls to the ground, he's on a horse and he falls off, or, you know, we don't know what that's like, but he's arrested in his tracks, and he hears a voice, and the voice says to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And we know this now. We know the story. We know this is the voice of Jesus. So the qualification for being an apostle in those days and in, in, our, in our Christian story is to have seen the risen Lord. That's what you had to do. You wanted to be one of the apostles, you had to see the risen Lord. And so our, our Easter preaching usually covers these post-resurrection experiences where Jesus appears to the disciples and they see him in the risen, his risen body, still with the scars from the nails and the spear in his side. They see the risen body of Jesus. They encounter him and they can then be witnesses, accurate, dependable witnesses about the resurrection to the rest of the world. So that's the qualification. You can't be an apostle unless you saw the risen Jesus. So the reason we read this text in the Easter season is that Paul that day, Saul that day, excuse me, sees the risen Lord. He sees Jesus. He sees this vision, and Jesus speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in Luke's storytelling, Jesus doesn't talk to you and say your name twice unless he means business. All right, you remember the, the story of Mary and Martha, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Right? Martha, Martha. Right, he talks to Mary, and then he says, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have longed to gather you together and to love on you, but you just keep rejecting me just like you rejected the prophets. So he uses the same tone, Saul, Saul, why are you killing me? Now, of course, Saul's not killing Jesus directly, but he's killing Jesus' followers. So already we have this early theology of the body of Christ, that when Members of the body of Christ are killed. Christ is persecuted. When members of the body of Christ suffer, Christ is persecuted. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, so Saul, I mean, this is a, A cataclysmic thing. Saul encounters, or he gets some specificity in his worship of God. Remember, he's been worshiping God. He's worshiping the same God that we worship. Uh, but he gets specific now. He understands how this is supposed to work. He meets Jesus, the Son of God, the risen Messiah. Paul and all of his Jewish buddies, they long for the Messiah. That's, that's the great hope for the Jewish nation. They they had to have the Messiah to have hope for anything in life, and they were waiting for this Messiah. Saul assumes that Jesus was a false Messiah. He's a fraud. 
And now he's been killed and he's put in his rightful place and his followers need to be reminded that he was a false messiah and that he died. So it's a very big surprise to Saul when Jesus meets him on the road and he's alive. So this resurrection news is startling for Paul and it's startling for us. Whatever else we say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it always has an element of startling us. The resurrection news to us is never humdrum. It's never, oh yeah, laissez-faire, you know, front page of the paper, whatever, Monday morning. It always has a tone of just something we really never expected, something that without which we don't have the kind of hope that we depend on. It startles us. So through worship and a vision, we sometimes see God in a new way. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in a way that prompts change. The beginnings are the continuation of a transformative life process. But why does this happen? Why does it happen this way? Because God is a holy God. This is the God that created the heavens and the earth. God does not do my bidding. He does not do your bidding. This is not a God who fits in our toy box. He's a holy and terrifying God. He is a jealous, zealous God who loves and offers life to the world that he created. God looks for and finds in Saul a zealous person to deliver this fresh news of resurrection to the world. It's ironic, right? It's, but it's genius. I mean, here you have the guy, the very person that's persecuting your movement and persecuting you, and you appoint him as the primary ambassador to much of the unknown world. And it's strange to us, and we see the irony, but it's familiar to us as well, because any of us that have ever felt like we needed to take steps toward following Christ, we tend to always feel like we're unlikely people, right? I mean, we always look, Paul, like, I was the most unlikely person in the world to be an ambassador for God. And, and that's we're in a good place when we feel that way. Those are the kind of people, we are the kind of people that God uses to accomplish his mission. So we're in good company when we feel that way. Here's Paul. So Christ choosing us in this way. I want to just kind of finish out the sermon talking about just some observations about conversion in general. Some conversion that happens in Saul's life. And the reason I keep calling him Paul, even though I'm trying to call him Saul, and uh, the conversion that happens, and conversion that happens in our life. And we've been looking at this, we've been studying this account all these years, and it always gets into a little bit of a debate about, well, now how much of this was God's action, and him just showing up and interrupting Paul in the mix of all he's doing, and how much of this is Paul seeking God and finding who he was really seeking for? How much is the human element? How much is the divine element? And so we go on through the centuries debating. We'll never really get to the bottom of it. But we know it's a, it's both and. God is seeking to reach us as his people. And we know that we have a part to play in searching for God. So we see this all come to a beautiful head in Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. Isn't it great that Saul, it tells us in the text, Luke says he was seeking to go to Damascus so he could bind up people this imagery of people having their wrists bound, and lead them back to Jerusalem. Prisoners, right, all those miles, all the way to Lubbock, dragging people along, bound up. And what happens to Saul? He's blinded, and he can't get to Damascus on his own. What happens? He's 
bound up and led by his buddies into town. It's a great reversal. Um, Saul, the primary zealot, the zealous person, he's the one who encounters Christ, the zealous God. So some conversion observations. We see Saul move from one of the most simple ways to understand conversion, darkness to light. He moves from darkness to light. Saul moves from having his eyes closed to having his eyes open. So we sing songs about that all the time, right? My eyes were open. You know, I saw the light. Is that Hank Williams? Yeah, Hank Williams. Anyways, um, Saul moves from isolation to community. He's restored in the church. Saul moves from seeing Jesus as just a teacher, a false Messiah and a dead man, to seeing Jesus as we know him, as the risen Lord and the head of the church. Major conversion steps. And then the rest of the story in this little bit here has to do with a guy named Ananias. And Ananias represents the church. It's a beautiful story. Saul, you know, can't see, so he's being led into town by his buddies. And he's obviously looking to see. He's not eating. He's not drinking. Uh, a lot of people suspect he's intentionally fasting. He knows something's going on with God. He, he wants to see. He feels like this is a good time to fast. This is a good time to prepare your heart for what may be coming. So uh, Jesus also reaches out to a guy named Ananias in a vision. And he says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go down around the corner. And he gives him good GPS coordinates. He says, go over there and you're going to find this guy praying. And his name is Saul. And when you find him, I want you to lay your hands on him. And I want you to, you know, pray for him. And we'll see what happens. So Ananias says, um, that's a great idea, Lord. But I know this guy, Saul. We all know him. We're no dummies. And we know why he's here. And he's here to kill us. So do you really want me to go and pray for this guy that wants to kill me? And Jesus assures Ananias, he says, yeah, I know it's crazy, but I want you to go. This is actually the guy that I've appointed to carry the gospel to the nations. So it's okay. You're safe. Go ahead. So Ananias obeys. He goes. He lays his hands on Saul. And he calls him. This is crazy. This is one of the most startling things in the text to me. He calls him Brother Saul. Lays his hands on him. Hey, Brother Saul. I'm like, the guy that's coming to kill you. And you lay your hands on him and say, Brother Saul. That's like, welcome to the family, buddy. And, and I mean, it's amazing. What an act of faith. What an act of obedience. Brother Saul. And he prays for him. And Saul regains his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized in the church, right? They bring him into full community and he gets to eat again. He's strengthened. Right? He's been fasting. He's been without food. And so he's restored to the community and uh, kind of the rest is history as we know it. So just an invitation. What is maybe a response that you or I would have to this story? Uh, a couple of possibilities and you will certainly hear some of your own. One response to this story, I think, is to just keep seeking God in prayer. Just to keep seeking God. Prayer is one of the hardest things in life. And it's very often, it's very common to feel alone. That God doesn't hear us. That we're not making a difference. That nothing's happening. So just an encouragement to keep praying. And we never know what sort of visions and experiences are down the road to encourage us. Maybe it's an invitation to increase in reference and wonder at the presence of the resurrected Lord, making us perhaps candidates for seeing Christ in a new way. Maybe one response is to just simply acknowledge our tendency to be blind, 
to be blind to some of the things that we hold most dear and that we're zealous about. Be able to lean on others in the community to help us sort out the direction that we're headed. And finally, maybe our response today is to be an Ananias to somebody. Maybe there's somebody that Christ is calling you to go to and to extend that kind of hospitality. Brother Saul, brother Bill, brother whoever that we think might be on the outside, on the fringes, someone to extend a word from Jesus to let those people know that they have a chance to belong. I think I've discerned in, in this story my own um, an opportunity to respond uh, that I'm reluctant to, and, and, and that is just that uh, a response of obedience to Jesus with some boldness at times. And so I'm going to be looking to the people that I, that I trust that can help me discern the voice of God in this way and, and try to be courageous, try to be bold in responding to some of those promptings and those callings. Uh, but whatever you're hearing today, uh, may one of these responses find you, may it encourage you in your faith, and may you be able to take a step in the direction of the risen Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.